Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, Comics Cavalcade Book Club takes a look at Powers of X and House of X, the collected edition, with Daniel Elkin and Keith Silva. It's a free-willing 75 minutes or so of conversation about the most interesting, popular, controversial, and not greatest graphic novel of 2019, a book that we dig into real depth and uh, bring in some interesting insights, I think. And we also kind of diss on it, and it's kind of funny, too. I think you'll enjoy a fun, fast, interesting listen to it. Um, it starts right after this ad. <laughs> I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade Book Club. This time joining me to talk about Powers of X and House of X are my friends... Keith Silva and Daniel Elkin. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Thank you, Jason. Yes, you too. Hello. <laughs> so this book has gotten a huge amount of... Uh, praise over the last uh, year or so. It's been credited with bringing people back to the X-Men and reviving interest in the X-Men. Um, I know uh, both of us, or all of us, really bring a different viewpoint to that. So I'm curious um, what your take is on it. Um, Daniel, what did you think uh, jumping in without being a big X-Men fan? Well, the X-Men that I knew was uh, back in the 80s, and... Um to say that there are some some a lot i have a lot of questions i really i jumped into this thing and i was uh lost through most of it lost how dan i uh, just like i like i wasn't sure what was going on who these people were um why they were doing what they were doing and um really if, i i just was really impressed with professor x's big hat love that big hat uh, yeah, I mean, I just don't get that big hat, but I love it. And I couldn't figure out why he was walking around either. But I'm sure you guys could tell me. Uh, I'll jump in before Jason goes. I can't tell you uh, why he's walking around other than why not. Um, I figure it's the hat. The hat. Right. The hat is... The hat is Cerebro, uh, if I'm correct. I mean, that that's, that's the hat. Instead of it being a room that he goes into and a hat that he wears in the room... Now he just wears it around with him. So well, it's like I, the cell phone version of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the mobile, mobile <laughs> version of Cerebro. Um, it's certainly so a big I, hat. It's a big hat. It's definitely a big, yeah, hat. big hat. And every big time I see him in that, I'm like, is that heavy? Or is yeah. it, is it yeah. like... Why does he have to wear like a jumpsuit when he wears the hat? Uh, I wouldn't like call that a... Well, it's a form-fitting yeah, yeah. leotard. Leotard. That would be a better word for it, yes. Uh, so I'll, I'll say, you know, as initial impressions, uh, like Daniel, perhaps my X-Men were, oh, 30 years ago, but I think the X-Men are universal, and you don't need to know that much to sort of keep up with them. The faces change, but everything basically stays the same. Uh, like Jason and I had heard that... Uh, this was the uh, newest, latest, greatest, best everest uh, X-Men comic that had come out in some time. And I was seeing people online who I admire, uh, number one being Marlon James, the author, uh, Marlon James of Black Leopard, 
Black Leopard Red Wolf. So if Marlon James is throwing down, I'm in. Uh, so that's why I was interested to read this. My initial thoughts were, um, which I, I suppose we'll get into, I guess I'm, I don't like Jonathan Hickman. I think I can confirm that very much and feel very confident <laughs> in saying that now. I do not like his style. Um, and we can talk about that. And otherwise, it was an interesting X-Men story on some levels, but a very baffling story on other levels where I was sort of left asking, so what? What is going on here and what is the point? Oh, and I'm yes. hoping that you guys in this conversation will help me uh, work that out. And you will also uh, berate me. And send all your emails to Jason Sachs, uh, all your Jonathan Hickman. <laughs> why, did you, why did you bring people on that don't like Jonathan Hickman? He's the greatest. Send all your hate mails to Jason Sachs. Yes. And, and if you want to be on a rebuttal podcast, uh, we can arrange that. <laughs> the rebuttal podcast. <laughs> okay, Jason, your turn. Yeah. Well, so I think you put your finger on the thing that's my thing on this also, which is it seems almost designed to confuse yeah. And all the explanation pages which are given, all this background, all the text material about the different levels of mutant and the evolution of uh, the different sentinels and all the different ways that the eggs are fertilized uh, is meant to make things make more sense. But instead it just made me more confused or just was lacking some context I needed to understand exactly what was happening. And I think it's almost like a failure of the comic itself that it needs so much explanation go on jason I, i'll oh, i'll sorry. In the session. <laughs> no, 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 no. so yeah i mean i so i guess to me like often comics are this objective art form where you can create subjective experiences and have people share your subjective experiences, right? So you can have a narrative where someone's sharing this internal dialogue and you can see it manifested on the page and it becomes more interesting because you get to see things in this multidimensional way. In this book, it seemed like there were all these objective experiences with no subjectivity, which prevented us from really having context around it. Now, I get some of the big strokes of the moments. You know, I got that destroying the mother mold is important. And of course, the, you know, the, the uh, independent country on Krakoa is very cool, and they got the fireworks and everything. But a lot of the, a lot of the passion, there seemed seem to be lacking passion in humanity. Yeah, I would say passion and humanity were sort of, well, humanity as humans stand are definitely out the door with this set of X-Men because they have no use for humans of any kind. Uh, that's for certain. And the other thing that I would say is I wasn't confused. It took me a while to sort of get my feet under me and sort of understand um, where I was and what time I was at and X3 and 1,000 years from now and 100 years from now and 10 years from now and now and all this other stuff. But I got it. I got the story. I'm just not really sure the story was as complex as it made itself out to be. Mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of, um, for want of a better phrase, narrative prestidigitation. A lot of don't pay attention to this hand over here, you know, kind of stuff where you're being, uh, you're, you're, you're supposed to be, um, you know, uh, faked out by what's going on over here as opposed to what's really happening. And, um, I'll just come out and flat out say that 
uh, Moira McTaggart, who is now Moira X, which, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> fine, you want to change your name, change your name. Um, is one of my, I think, a, a favorite character because she was in, you know, what I would say is my favorite mutant run is the Claremont Sienkiewicz New Mutants run. She plays a big role in that. It's really cool that she was never a mutant, but she was, you know, on the you know, a human on the side of mutants, which was interesting to me. And she had a role. She ran Muir Island. She took care of Legion. She had other mutants there. It was it was it was fine. And so the other thing that we're dealing with with this comic, right, is how you feel about uh, retcons. And as long as you're okay with the writer, the creators, whomever you know, changing things up and saying, oh, no, by the way, it wasn't like this uh, that's been established. It's actually like that and this new sort of thing. So if you're okay with that, I think that's why this comic is is works for so many people, because, you know, he's he's rearranging the, the deck chairs and whether he's on the Titanic or just a, you know, Princess Cruise line, I don't know. But there's a lot of chair rearranging and I'm not sure to what end. Yeah, and I don't really have. Well, so I, I guess my question is, Daniel, since you're not a, a fan of this work at all, did you feel like it stood on its own in a way that um, that made sense, that made it an enjoyable reading experience for you? Uh, I'm sorry, I kind of couldn't hear what you said. Oh, sorry. Did you feel like it pulled together in a way that made it an enjoyable reading experience for you? Uh, enjoyable reading experience. No. Okay. That's a good answer. There's some nice art, uh, some interesting layouts. Um, I just felt that that there was there was too much going on um, that it became it became burden burdensome. That's hard to say to read and. Uh, all the explanations that were necessary in order for me to try and piece it together uh, took me out of whatever emotional experience I could be having. And then, um, I don't know, it just seemed like the same damn X-Men story again, just told on maybe a larger scale. It, like all Hickman work, it felt like it was deliberately obscure. Like, uh, I like Keith's point about how it just felt like he was kind of just throwing all these things up in the air and it, expecting you to watch the spinning plates while the story was happening somewhere else. And so is that maybe because there's not really much to the story at all? Oh, I would say there's an awful lot to the story. At least Jonathan Hickman wants you to believe there's a lot to this story. He's got three separate or four separate timelines. Right. He's jumping back and forth. Right. There's a lot that's going on on the page here and a lot of things that basically, you know, you know, Jason didn't say spoilers uh, ahead of time, but if you've come this far, um, you know, now the X, no X-Men need to die. No mutants need to die ever. They've got the, the squad who uh, brings mutants back to life. And Professor X is there with his cool hat, with uh, his cerebral <laughs> hat. And your, your, your version of you down to every 
thought, memory, everything you've ever had, your, your essence, your personality, your soul gets put back into you. So, you know, game on. Does I, I would say that's a game changer. I would say that's a big change from any sort of, uh, you know, we don't need to kill mutants anymore um, because we can just bring them back. How many times we can bring them back, how we bring them back, I think those details haven't been worked out yet story-wise, but... That's a big deal uh, as far as any sort of comic book inside the, 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 the comic book world goes. The, the, they figured a way how to, you know, send them on suicide missions and bring them back to life, to bring them back their bodies and everything. So, Which is so. only a tiny twist to the fact that everyone is resurrected anyway, mm-hmm. right. because there's literally been no Marvel character who stayed dead. And that's sort of a commentary on comics in and of itself, or at least these kind of comics. Um, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that at the end there's this realization that all this too is going to fail. Oh yeah, uh, th- there's not this. It's not at the end. In issue two, uh, let me just see. I wrote I wrote this down. In issue two, and I think this is one of the things that uh, if I don't talk about it now, I'll talk about it later. Is uh, yeah, in the, the the future of the X-Men is revealed in issue two in the issue The Last Dream of Professor X, where if you read the the, the narrative, the text in matter, back matter, mid matter, it says Krakoa falls and Mr. Sinister destroys everyone and everything. So that's in issue two. At the end of the book, we get to this point, you know, the last page of the the, the physical book itself, we hear uh, Moira say we always lose and that's what's going to happen and we've already told you how we already lose whatever it was six issues before in issue two mm-hmm. and now we're telling you at the end we well we're just going to keep trying I guess and so why was I told in issue two that it all ends and now I'm being told at the end that it keeps going or we're going to try or Again, it, you know, there's a lot of having cake and eating it too here. I, that I, it, maybe I'm a little confused, but maybe also just I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, is this sort of the idea then that, well, okay, so we know it's going to fail, but we're going to just fight on anyway? Is that is this make that's what makes these guys heroes? Is, I mean, I'm just so lost in this. One. Well, I think so. There's a point. There's a statement. I think in issue one where where it says the founders of every country is remembered forever. Or words to that effect. And they are creating a new nation, a new world, which is based on a kind of euphoric um, optimism about the future of the world, right? They are truly revolutionaries. And whether they do ultimately perish, and whether their country ultimately um, becomes the country they dreamed it to be, um, the fact that they were able to found it and create it, I think, is its own work of art, I guess. And in that way... um, it also feels like the culmination of both Professor X's and Magneto's dreams to have mutants be seen as a separate but great race upon the earth. Upon the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I took it more as like a meditation and that maybe you can read some modern America in that where uh, what's created on kind of euphoric revolutionary ideals may not ultimately succeed in its own terms, but the creation of that world or country is its own achievement. Okay. And a worthy Uh, achievement. 
I, I would like to go back to something you said about Magneto and Professor X, because I think whether you're new to the X-Men, old to the X-Men, Elkin to the X-Men, whatever you are, <laughs> it's very clear that Magneto and Professor X are, uh, they have different worldviews of mutants and what that means. And in this book, they don't. They have the same voice. Mm-hmm. There's no more, you know, Magneto being nihilistic and Xavier having hope. They speak with the same voice now. I think a lot of the mutants all speak with the same voice. All the characters kind of have the same oneness to their speech, that speech that Storm gives when they come back to life or brought back to life. It's all the same thing. So my question is, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, the antagonism is past? And that just seems to me to be very, I mean, talk about things that are written into the X-Men's DNA. Where's the, where, they're just going to fight humans now. They're not going to fight amongst themselves. They're all going to live in harmony. That doesn't, that seems short-sighted on, and a little bit against what X-Men comics are about. You know, unless they're going to fight superheroes now and, and, and whomever, so... But, I, so, I don't know. The, the one voice thing bugged me. Well, also, I mean, an interesting artistic choice that I kept noticing throughout this thing is that everybody talked with their mouths closed. <laughs> you see very few examples in this in this work with uh, anyone's mouth open unless they're screaming or in pain or something like that. And I, I it was bothering me. And now, sort of what you just said made me think whether that that might have been a choice. Well, here's Professor X at the head of the whole group who can control minds, right? That's his whole game. Right. He's the ultimate telepath. Oh. Mm-hmm. So is there so, some element of him leading everyone to follow his vision of the world? Especially now that he has that big hat. The big well <laughs> and the big hat like amplifies things. Yeah. So I guess there's two readings of that. One is the literal meaning on reading on the page, which is um, somehow he's controlling everyone to follow his utopian vision of what mutant society can be. The other is this whole other idea that just occurred to me, which is maybe this is all essentially a fever dream by Professor X. He's seeing the world. This is him kind of having a dream of how he imagines the world taking shape in his euphoric uh, mentality, and uh, none of this is meant to be taken literally, which would explain, like, the stilted dialogue and the oddness of um, some of the scenes. One of the things I found really interesting, and I thought... Uh, and, and Sorry, and, and one more thing, and sorry, the, the no, kind no, of idealizing of Moira as a mutant would also flow for that also, because she was his, like, lost love for many years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry, Keith. No, no, no. All I was going to say is one of the one of the things that I found interesting is you never see Professor X's face, his body full on. Mm-hmm. It's always either just his mouth because he's wearing the Cerebro helmet or, you know, it's the back of his head. You see him in the past, you see his face, but in the present moment, you never see his face. He, it, even when he has the helmet off, uh, I'll flip through and try to find it, um, but... He's always, you know, uh, he's always drawn where his he's at three quarter a turn, or 
it's just showing the lower part of his face or the back of his head. You never see his full face. Again, I don't know if that – it has to be a choice. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't mm-hmm. think they, that, that, that was you know, sort of left to necessarily the artist's discretion. So what does that mean? And I think that's the other thing where – and we'll get into this maybe a little bit later too – is like that's the back door, right? What you're saying, Jason, is you know we're going to spin out whatever, another couple of years of comics here, another hundred issues of – all these other X titles of whatever, and then it can all be a dream. He could have, been, you know, it'll be retconned again, and we'll say, oh, you know how you never saw his face, and everyone was under mind control or whatever. You know, it, it, it leaves it out. That's what I'm saying, and I think it's one of the things about this comic that is so makes it really dull <laughs> because yeah. it's not going to stick. You just yeah, there's, know. No, there's no stakes, right? Right, no yeah. stakes. Yeah. But there's all the stakes because they're making it plain that, you know, there's supposed to be lots of stakes. And I don't think I think when you start to peel it back, there isn't there. There are very few stakes. That's the problem. We already know how it's going to end. Right. I mean, if we already know that this whatever this is, is doomed to fail, then I, I mean, where's the emotional investment then other than just saying, oh, it's so sad that they're so hopeful. Well, I think I could see where there would be an emotional investment if it was handled in the way, sadly, that we would want to see it done. Like, I think this could be a great setup for basically something around, like, uh, French monarchy pre-Napoleon kind of thing, where all the courtesans are fighting amongst each other to win the king's favor. Uh, You know, that kind of thing, a palace intrigue sort of saga. And I think that could be ultimately a really interesting uh, way of approaching it where um, you're kind of building up these tribes who are going to ultimately fight against each other to, for the future of the mutant race, or something like that. I'm just throwing that out there, there as a concept. Is that the same damn X-Men story again? And then it becomes... Well, yeah. we all, but we all know in 2022 it's going to go back to the same thing, assuming we don't all die of the coronavirus. <laughs> Ouch. This podcast is very socially distanced, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> let's get all our, let's get all our yeah. things out of the way right but, now. But I, I, I'm kind of reinforcing your point then, Keith, um, which is um, I, I think uh, they're not I, – I haven't been reading the follow-up books, but I can't imagine they would go, with, go in a direction that would be ultimately kind of true to the kind of – almost subversive nature of this idea because the, the idea itself is really interesting. And if this is... Okay, so let me throw this out this, there this way. If this is a standalone comic, say, from Image Comics. So there's Jonathan Hickman and R.B. Silva, but they are creating powers of Y, and it's the Y-Men in there. Okay. okay. Y-Men. Well, no, call him a Simon. Let's call him a Simon. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's Professor Psy, P.S.I. <laughs> but uh, and there were stakes, and we knew they were going to last. Would it have more power for you? Absolutely. I think you know wherever there's any sort of when they did, and 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 again, let me give credit where credits due here. The scene I'm on the spaceship where they went to destroy the mother mold was great action adventure comics. It was great. The story was wonderful. You know, you really were like, oh, my gosh, are they going to make it? You had that whole you can get very caught up with it. I thought that was the most dramatic and exciting part of the story. And, oh, my God, you know, 
they're building a giant sentinel on the sun powered by, you know, solar powered. And it's just going to build these incredible sentinels. That's classic X-Men, classic comic storytelling. It's great storytelling. And to then the X-Men are sent there on essentially a suicide mission and they succeed and they blow it up. I was like, wow. But the minute it happened and I saw them, you know, you know, Wolverine and Nightcrawler falling into the sun, I thought, wow, they're really going to kill them off? Cyclops is dead? Is that what everybody's talking about here? <laughs> Daniel's shaking his head off. Yeah. Like, yeah. Never, no, no. <laughs> and so had they done that and then not the next issue been like, oh, yeah, by the way, we can bring everyone back from the dead now. Yeah. Um, right. I just felt like, oh, it was just it's just another, you know, you know, only whatever it is, only Uncle Ben stays dead in comics kind of yeah. thing. And that's that. And it lost the stakes. And, right. you know, OK, I, I never expected them to ever do that. But the fact that they did, I felt was interesting. But then immediately to go away from it, yeah, we're just back in the same. You can't, kill, you can't kill that IP, man. You got to keep that yeah, IP. You can't going. kill yeah. that IP. You can't kill that IP. You got to have that IP, baby. Yeah. I, you know, then I think that's my frustration with these sorts of things is they try and take on these big ideas in a uh, in a genre that just can't support it. Well, what do you mean? Wait a second. Why can't it support it? Because of the very thing that you just sort of said. We we invest so much into this, and then in the very next moment, they just go, "Ha ha!" Just kidding. So, but but shouldn't it be shouldn't it be the perfect medium to support this sort of thing? Where 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 else can you find these kind of grand universe spanning or um, you know world spanning sagas than in a superhero graphic novel? Uh, I think you can find it in all sorts of other places where they're not so invested in maintaining continuity and, and uh, holding on to the IP. So, so again, this, this I, I hate to sound, you know, I hate to fall back on the Annie Wilkes model, but, uh, you know, the, 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 he didn't get out of the cock-a-duty car. You know? <laughs> uh-huh. We're back to the same place here where we're saying the same thing. We're like, we knew that nothing was going to happen. Right. Nothing happened. Everything went back to normal. It got tweaked a little bit, and now that that's a thing. Like, retconning is a thing inside the Marvel Universe now where you can just bring anybody back and change it however you like. But that doesn't explain why these why this series has bubbled up to, to for, you know, quote-unquote real X-Men fans, comic fans, to say, wow, this is really exciting. They're doing something different here. And I'm standing in the theater. I'm standing up saying, no, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> Did you all have brain damage? <laughs> they're not doing anything different. Yeah. So, so, so. So what so, is it? Yeah. yeah. Jason. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Let me, let me take another drink of my gin and tonic uh, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. give us some yeah. pondering. Save us. Else, yeah, no, and I don't know if Jason, you want to be the X Men apologist here, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a, uh, well, I keep coming back to the idea that um, the ideas are just really interesting, and it does, in some ways, feel yeah, like the resurrection, the the nation, the uh, ultimate fate of uh, um, of um, Sabretooth. Um, the idea of another generation of, of these ex-heroes and their kind of derivative versions of those heroes, those are all kind of cool ideas. 
I think it's uh, there's a lot of the stuff that's like legit interesting in there. The same way there's a lot of stuff in Hickman's Fantastic Four saga that's legitimately interesting. Like, to me, like, the Legion of Reed Richards, for example, all the Reed Richards from across every dimension coming together and becoming allies, but some of some of them are tortured, some of them aren't. It's kind of cool, right? <laughs> Maybe not. We lost it. Why you just broke me with all the Reed Richards coming together? Uh, uh, okay. That's a, lot of rich, that's a lot of Richards for you, yeah. is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Too, too many dicks and not enough uh, deities. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I, I, grant, I will grant you, this comic has a lot of interesting ideas, and if, you know, not to be so cynical, but to what end? Oh, yeah, no, that was my question, too. Okay, uh, well, so, what... I guess that's the thing. You brought it up, Jason, so you get to be the apologist explainer. Well, I'm not going to be the apologist. I'm going to be the conversation continuer. Okay. Um, I think you have to take this as a standalone kind of work. So if you take this as a standalone work and you're not and you're not saying, where's this leading to, but does it stand on its own? And if you have a little bit of background in these characters... Is it intriguing to you? Do you are you interested in the derivative characters based on Nightcrawler and Colossus? Are you interested in the idea of the uh, mutant nation, uh, the the no res the uh, the resurrection tool? So I I heard a lot of buzz about the resurrection stuff, mm. which I think is very, it is kind of legitimately interesting, and it would be like legitimately interesting if we already knew that every character gets resurrected, right? But if you're not cynical about it. I think it's kind of cool. I think it's kind of intriguing. Into this idea, though, all of these ideas is that all of this is going to fail, right? There's already this idea. You go into it. You said like right in the second issue, you go into it and you say, "Oh, well, this is just temporary. Mm-hmm. Why should I invest in any of this?" I think Jason makes a good point. Where if you take the investment out of it and just look at it on that. Uh, basic level of for my three ninety nine, four ninety nine. I'm sure these comics were five ninety nine when they came out, or even what you know you bought it in thirty four ninety nine. That's Daniel's yeah. problem. Thirty four ninety nine. You needed the you needed the uh, to get it on the the device on the uh, Kindle. Yeah. Um, e comic. It, it does it stand on its own? So uh, to answer your question, Jason, yes, as a as as a X Men story. It stands on its own. There are some interesting ideas there. Look, if you're going to turn Krakoa, that was a sentient um, uh, island, into now like uh, a, a sentient island that can create, you know, uh, doorways and pathways all around the world and all around the universe and do all this other stuff, there's some cool comic book stuff there. And I, I grant you, you know, Krakoa being this place of safety for these mutants is great. All the stuff with the, I mean, you had time travel in this, you had every sort of thing in an X-Men story that you could possibly want done well, executed well, and I think that's unfortunately for me, you know, where I guess it has to stop, and I have to take that other part of to what end out of it, because that's not what this story is about. The story is, if you will, self-contained, even though it's not. It's not a serial story, but on its own, yeah, I guess it's okay. You know, I guess it's there are some interesting ideas there, um, but that's where you have to leave it, I suppose. 
I mean, to me, if you take other retcon events, sure, you have to just see them as their own thing. Hell, uh, freaking Daniel's favorite Crisis on Infinite Earths. <laughs> Um, right, right. The ultimate retcon, right? The ultimate retcon, right? It had a ridiculous number of results to it, but we we had to look at it when we did our piece on that about as its own work. Um, but even leaving that aside, so I, I, we haven't heard Daniel on, on whether it stands alone well. I think it it required way too much prior knowledge to even begin to talk about it as standing on its own. Mm -hmm. It required a lot of, of background information to be able to understand what the central conflict was, because that's really, I mean, it's, it's explained, but not enough that you didn't need that prior knowledge. Um, and it's within this universe that has been around for so long that it carries all that baggage. So I don't know if I could say that it stands on its own. I think, I think you, it stands mm. as an X-Men comic. Mm-hmm. That's what it stands as. And whether that's enough for someone like me to be invested in, I don't think so. Would you be invested, Daniel, in another graphic novel that was uh, grandiose and, and giant like this, though? Or is this just not your kind of thing? No, I'm all for big ideas, and I'm, I'm okay. all for... Uh, you know, new ways of presenting things, but but I don't think that this particular genre allows for too much of it, because it does end up being the same characters that have the same continuity that that have to be fit into um, sort of a corporate model. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and. It doesn't allow the the writers to go too far astray, right? Right. It doesn't allow them to go too far astray. So therefore, Hickman comes up with the idea of resurrection, which in some ways it, it, it does two things, right? It fits right into what you're talking about. Okay, everybody wants to. Uh, everybody knows that everyone comes back in comics. Well. Let's put these characters literally in the comic as a way of coming back uh, every time. Right. And so this is like one of those things where he's getting this idea that we all think of out in the real world into the universe itself, which in some ways is admirable. I think that's as far as Hickman wants to take it. Mm-hmm. He hints at what it could be and in the future – X3 world or whatever, we see how they've combined some of the DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get a Nightcrawler arm and a and a, and a magic uh, sword and, you know, whatever. So that's interesting. That sort of gets left on its own to sort of be like, oh, yeah, they can do that now. And so obviously something goes astray. We never really see how or what, but you are told in the back matter or whatever how it happens or why it happens. But I guess that's the thing is sort of a standalone story. You know, he's putting retcons like directly in the world itself. So maybe that's admirable. I don't know. Again, I sort of feel like to what end, but maybe Jason's right. Maybe you have to separate that side of yourself, the Annie Wilkes side of yourself, and just be like, how is the story as the story goes? 
it's got some interesting ideas. I just don't know if Hickman is willing to go further with them other than to say, hey, isn't this cool? Yeah, and, and what more can you do? I mean, really, as I think this is where I start to really show my colors. Uh, what more can you do in in the sort of um, in this sort of medium where um, you know everything is prescribed, everything is part of a, a, a continuation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have new ideas. You could sprinkle, ooh, look at this little twist on this idea, but ultimately, it doesn't go anywhere. Again, we don't know where it's going to go. Well, I mean, we can we can assume, right, that they want to continue selling X-Men comics. Yeah. So X-Men comics will revert to whatever X-Men comics are every time, especially when a new writer comes on. But take that out of it. If, if we just take the real world out of it and in the world of the comics, in the MCU 616 or whatever the fuck it is now or whatever <laughs> – is that does this bring something new? And I would I have to say uh, it does bring something new. To what end? I don't know. And I think that's what Jason is saying. Is yeah. Well. I mean, I, I guess, guess that's that's comics, right? That's, I, that's, yeah. I, I, comics. I guess yeah. I I guess I compare it to Mister Miracle, which um, oh, here we go, Mister <laughs> Miracle. Hello, world. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right, bring it on, Sax. Bring it on. Uh, 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 by the way, have either of you read the new Strange Adventures with Adam Strange? I would don't want to read Mister Miracle, so the answer is no. <laughs> really good. Another another co- another podcast for another time. Another, um, we had, we talked a lot about Mister Miracle, and I don't think we ever really talked about where the storyline was leading. We talked about it as an individual work of comic art, comic creation. And I think seeing it as a standalone work of comic art, comic creation, um, gave it a, a power and and majesty. I don't know if that's the right word. Integrity as a, as an individual work. Now I think part of what we're and I think anyone reading that wouldn't have trouble with that. In part because there's no ongoing Mister Miracle book, but in part also because that book is created intentionally to be a closed work. With uh, vaguenesses and themes that are played out through the work, I think what you're feeling with House of X and Power of X is this idea that um, this is the beginning of a new phase, the beginning of a new new era in X-Men comics, and that's what's gotten people legitimately excited about it because they want to surf in that new era for the next two years until the next thing comes along and it gets them excited to move to surf in that next era. Um, it's like when Dr. Octopus took over the body of Peter Parker and they did Infernal Spider-Man for a year and people were like, this is cool, we know it's going to end, but um, it's kind of fun to see how this all plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the thing? That actually happened? Yeah, it actually happened. That actually happened. happened. <laughs> you're, you're into it. Tell, you're, you're already thinking about it. I can tell. I, right? So so there you go, Daniel. Like, when you hear that, don't, don't you like say... Oh fuck! I got to check this out. This sounds awesome. <laughs> I really do, but, but I'm just I'm just fascinated with the fact that they they have these tired old stories that they have to inject these new ideas into, and then once they get a new idea into it, they go, okay, that was fun. Let's go back to the old story because uh, that's where people are comfortable, and then maybe we can try something new again. That's the bigger question because that's the idea that comics never uh, stay to any changes they've created. 
right? So there's a lot, there was a lot of controversy to get super geeky about this, about Barry Allen coming back to be the Flash, or Hal Jordan coming back to be Green Lantern, right? I mean, they'd move on to the next generation, or even in the Flash's case, the third generation, and they kept saying, no, 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 actually, you know, we're going to bring Barry back, and uh, to what end? To what point? Whose nostalgia is at play here? These are just essentially just IPs that were juggling to have them fit a certain um, need for the corporate environment to, to continue. Right, but again, if we divorce ourselves from the IP part of it and we just look at it as a story, mm-hmm. is its, are its merits good enough to be a comic story? Well, but I think that you... Because you're saying you can't divorce yourself. Yeah, from. because they're okay. using these characters uh, and all that back story in order to tell this story. I think it becomes very difficult to to extract this story from what had gone before. Okay, and so in Mister Miracle, it's more implicit. In this book, it's more explicit. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot that's explicit in this book. I mean, as much as we want to say, ooh, what's mm. going to come next, in some parts of this book you're told what's going to come yeah. next yeah. implicitly, and uh, your friend, Mr. Hickman, can't help himself from explaining everything in detail. Mm. There is very little left to the imagination. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to say you had trouble following it, that's a bigger failure of the story than anything else because – Boy, this dude, this dude does not leave any stone unturned. If, if you're, if you're, you know, I'm not saying you guys weren't paying attention, but he doesn't leave much to the imagination. It's very much uh, explained in yeah. detail it several is. times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there are so many layers to this thing, and and what I, I found was that a lot of the explanation occurred after the fact. Right, you would read the issue, you would muddle your way through whatever the hell they're talking about, and then it would get explained to you, and you go, oh, oh, that's what they were talking about? Huh. <laughs> so you're hitting on something I really felt, too, which is he'd come to these explanations, and I'd be like, oh, that's not as exciting as I thought it would be. <laughs> well, I want to I wanna ask the resident comics history expert, since, since we have one uh, in the group here. Uh, so, Daniel, now I... <laughs> So, so Jason, yeah, Daniel, uh, how does this fit into the Michael LaForge catalog? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, uh, Jason, as far as the, the, the narrative, what I've been calling the, the, the back matter, mid matter, whatever, that's been used in comics for years, you know, explaining sort of in the back matter, whether it's a letter column or whatever, sort of what's happening in the story. Uh, and, and I don't know if you can sort of help out because this for me is one of the small eye innovations that Hickman has is you read some comics and then it stops the story dead. And he then explains to you what you just read or the implications that it has in the world in which we're living. So as the resident comics expert, is this unique? It's unique to Hickman, I know. Yeah. But in comic storytelling, is this unique, and what's your read on it? Well, in this, the way Hickman does it, it's totally a Hickman stylistic quirk. Correct. He's been doing yeah. that since his first graphic novels, that image, like Red Mass on Mars, has that same stylistic quirk. Um, 
So it's a very specifically a Hickman-esque thing to do. But, I mean, it, it, that's as old as Marvel itself, where they'd have, you know, pages about um, the heroes and their powers and stuff. And there was the official handbook of the Marvel Universe from the 1980s, where they would catalog here. Not in the middle of the comic. And that's kind of seen, at, that that's definitely a different stylistic quirk. And I think that is Hickman kind of applying his own unique approach to comics. I think that is kind of interesting. Hmm. We've never really seen that in a Marvel book. He didn't do that on his Fantastic Four either. And, um, yeah, it's not as interesting or cool as that we want it to be. It is very graphically interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the pages certainly look nice, even if they're sharing stuff that I frankly just glossed over because I fucking didn't care about it. <laughs> Which is the problem? Which is right? Well, give me something that's going to be deeper and more interesting. So the other, the there's okay. So here's where my total '70s bias comes in. There's two writers who've done these large walls of text, and they've they've shared a lot of information. Daniel knows where I'm going with this. I do. They're, I think I do too. They're my writers. They're Don McGregor and Steve Gerber, right? Right. And right. we talked. Daniel and I have talked many times now about. Gerber and Man Thing, and how you know, like on the Kids Day Out, which is the greatest Gerber book, possibly. You know, he has this text page that gives you greater insight into the character and what's going on, and you feel like you're really transported to the character's head, right? McGregor similarly is was criticized for overwriting, but a lot of what he does was give you a sense of like the visceral power of what's happening to these characters. I didn't feel like, so I felt like what we got wasn't the interior. It was exterior. We were yes, getting absolutely. Wikipedia as opposed yes. to a, a blog. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yes. I I had the same exact reaction. I, I, I don't know. You guys know, you know, we all have different writing styles, but one of my things is I become more uh, attuned to things sort of going on that I pick up whenever I'm thinking about a project like this. And so the one that crossed my, uh, you know, transom this time was uh ronald d moore so he's the uh uh showrunner for outlander it's outlander night at the silver household so you know, another <laughs> hour, uh, you know some of the family will move to the uh, television and watch outlander. the female half is going to be uh... but he also ran uh deep space nine and then also the battlestar galactica reboot and so he had this quote which is really interesting which is he said there's a certain level of a Star Trek fan that needs to know the schematics of every ship that that the Federation has ever launched down to the hallways and what fuel it runs on and what kind of en- what the engine looks like and everything like that. He said, "I, as the creator of t- the storyteller of these worlds, I don't need that." But he said, "There's a level of fandom that does." Jonathan Hickman is a guy who needs that he needs those schematics which don't add to the story which is kind of what you're saying with all these sort of exterior details and not interior details that's what i'm getting when you know we find out the kind of dna and the different kind of robots and sentinels or whatever it is and again i ask to what end and for me yeah it's a hickman thing and uh in speaking with our uh, good friend David Fairbanks, and I was like, help me understand this man. He's like, some people like that about Hickman. They love it about him. And there's some people that can't get past it. And I think that's a dividing line between fans of this. So 
apparently, I mean, look, you don't get to write the X-Men if you're not good at your job, I guess. You know, they don't give that to anybody. So obviously they thought this guy was the right guy for the job, and now you know the DNA of different mutants. So there you are. <laughs> hey, maybe you guys could explain something to me. Um, so this collection that we have here that we're talking about is is House of X and Powers of X. I, what was the distinction? They were just two parallel miniseries that ran at the same time that and basically were collected what, together. What made a House of X book and what made a Powers of X book, though? The Power of X was all the stuff set in the future. Uh, okay. I would say that this is capital M marketing. Yeah. Um, and so divide the books up. I mean, you know, rather than, you know, have one big book, have 12 issues, like back in the day, you know, your beloved Crisis of Infinite Earths or uh, my beloved Secret Wars, um, <laughs> you know, you break them up and now you have, uh, was it 12, 12 issues in all? Six and so. six yeah. coming out every other month or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's all about marketing and, you know, that to me is a marketing department thing, not a Jonathan Hickman thing. I'm sure he wrote these stories. Obviously, they're very interconnected. So, yeah. you know. I was also um, amazed and slightly nauseated by the number of variant covers that were featured. In- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the hell is you that? You mean you don't want the, the comic with the angel variant cover, with the angel history variant? <laughs> well, uh, they don't, don't do that. Uh, don't do a lot of variant covers in uh, small press indie comics, Dan? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not to that extent. That was amazing. Hey, amazing. it's keeping all those artists in work, though. That's giving them work. So Beautiful. there you go. I'm all for that. Yeah. Yeah. Scotty Young probably was able to build a second pool yeah. onto the other pool with just the variant <laughs> covers. <laughs> so. This is probably a good time for you to ask your interesting question, Daniel, or Keith, rather. Oh, oh, you want the interesting question? Okay, yeah. so um, in reading this, I sort of, I asked both of you this question, which is basically the X-Men are always, a, the, there is a, the X-Men are always, a, now I have to sort of, I have to go back to my notes here, uh, <laughs> because I'm like, I know I asked an interesting question. <laughs> what did I ask? What did what I ask? Oh, okay, so X-Men comics are all about a metaphor. Uh, for the marginalized, alienated, you know, back in the 60s, it was teenagers, race, sexual orientation more recently, and it is what is uh, the secret sauce of the X-Men. It's the X gene that separates X-Men comics from all of their superheroes. So my big question was, what is the metaphor with this comic? So, you know, I, I brought to this book uh, The Jewish Experience, and I saw this about uh, trying to dissect Israel a little bit. And I really wanted to make that land and I really wanted to make that stick. And it kind of fell apart uh, as much as I tried to force it in there because it just didn't seem to hold. So you mean Israel as in creating a nation state for right. for Jews in the case of Israel for mutants on Krakoa? Right. And it didn't land because... Um, I, it, it became... I'm trying to re- recall exactly the moment that it fell apart for me. Um, 
come back to me. <laughs> well, uh, look, I think that's really this interesting, is, Daniel. This is my question. So was it the fascistic tendencies? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, so there's that. There, there are so those who could argue it's not a anti-Israeli thing to complain about the fascistic tendencies, but we can keep, but we can avoid that for the moment. Right, right. Okay, yeah. so, well, I mean, there was that that we've been hunted for so long. Now we're going to create our own um, mm-hmm. place, and then we can make our own rules, and we can we can stop. We're on out, and. Um, I think that there was, uh, it, it didn't seem to address the reality of the situation. Um, it was sort of like it, it was, okay, here's here's the idea, and let's just talk about the idea, not the reality. There, was, there wasn't the, um, so, I mean, Israel is, is basically land that was, uh, that was, Taken, we'll just put it that way, from the people that were that were living there at the time, and they they positioned themselves in a place where everyone around them didn't want them to be there, and that in is inherently that gives the the reason for why I think is Israel acts in a lot of the ways that it does. Um, whereas in this comic, that's not really what's happening, if that makes sense. It makes sense to me because I don't think, and now I'm really on thin ice here, uh, being the only uh, Christian in the group, uh, definitely on thin ice, but I don't think Israel was ever made at the exception of others, but the inclusion of, of one particular uh, faith. It wasn't to exclude everyone else. I mean, it, it's not like... A, it, I, it's I, I it's like... I could move to Israel tomorrow. It's not, you know, for me necessarily, but they don't keep me out simply because I'm not Jewish. Yeah, I, I know, but I they think. would keep you out if you were one of the people that they took the land from. Yeah. It's very kind of... If you talk to an Indian person, they'll share a, same, a similar story about the partition. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. Native Americans, you mean. Or, or, or people from India. People Indian from India. It was, okay. it was what I was okay. first thinking of. I mean, our, our crimes against Native Americans, it's a different story. Um, right. But I took, it, I took it similarly to Daniel, but I saw it as a very, like a, a declaration of post-colonial freedom. Or independence, and in that way, a little bit of a naive take on what would drive and then happen once you become free and independent. It doesn't, in my mind, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, Israel. It could be Kenya or South Africa or Taiwan. Um, it's this group that believes they're a homogeneous group, and a lot of their identity is based on them being a homogeneous group, mm-hmm. and that. Once they become a group that's kind of recognized as homogeneous as a nation state, um, they're opening themselves up to a whole set of problems that they probably couldn't have anticipated. But there's there's the the persecution of the group too, the the trauma that that engenders the need to find a homeland. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I at, at, 
and, the, and that could be a lot of other nationalities too. I'm just, yeah, it could be Eritreans, for example. But um, yeah, I think because I, I was thinking a lot about whether whether I can see the Jewish experience in this, and I think I do. So I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just sharing, just feeling like it's a little bit maybe of a broader point. So what was your metaphor for it, Jason? Post-colonialism and the struggle for independence as a people. And I guess that, that's the point I'm trying to make is um, at the moment that they, that they celebrate at the end of the, the, few, the, the last pages of the book, there's this feeling of, hooray, we're a free country now. Um, you know, this is, this is Romania circa 1989 or 1990 saying now we are free. Um, not expecting or knowing what kind of problems they would be facing. And in that brief moment of time in which they become free and then celebrate their independence for a year or two, um, they legitimately feel they are free until they have to start to think about more basic matters and start to run into political interference and battles and kind of get caught up in a lot of the stress of truly running a country. So that's why I kind of both agree and disagree with your assessment of this book, where um, I think it's exciting to read a book about a, a group of people, I guess we can call them their homo superiors, but whatever, that's that's um, that's splitting hairs, um, embracing their freedom. I think that's legitimately cool and exciting, and I think that's a lot of what people are responding to. And what you're wanting is a little bit of the time after the revolution. If you compare it to America, this is um, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and you're anticipating a book about Shays' Rebellion. Mm, mm. I, I, one of the things I wanted to bring up is a pivotal moment in the book when and the Fantastic Four uh, comes into this is so when they get Sabretooth back or whatever after they, or you know. We're, trying to steal whatever, you know, the, the glowing blue orb thing, you know, <laughs> if we think right. of the cinematic Marvel universe. Um, and, and the Fantastic Four steps in and Cyclops says, uh, your son is welcome to join us, but you're not. Mm-hmm. And that is a, that's a big moment, uh, yeah. whether you know the X-Men or not, or know the Fantastic Four of Marvel that, you know, basically this guy is telling the parents of a child, your son's welcome, but you're not. And I think that that to me is where that's very interesting. That to me is an interesting part of the story, an interesting idea. And that's what uh, we've said a lot of this is about. And that's where I tend to see that it's less welcoming. Uh, Krakoa is welcoming, but only if you have a certain hat on or you have, uh, you literally have to have the right DNA in which to come to Krakoa. You're not welcome otherwise. I don't know if that was in the founding of Israel or not. You guys are better than I would on that end. Well, but it's it's a, it's a homeland where okay. you can be assured that you can, well, for the most part, you can be safe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that, that is not particularly welcome in that, that locale. Hmm. I mean, the very reason for Israel's existence, as far as I understand it, is it's a Jewish homeland. Mm-hmm. Right. When when the shit hits a fan, we've got a place to go. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so I, I did ask this question with uh, with 
my my own answer. Uh, so let me let me spin that out uh, as you guys said something <laughs> far more interesting than I'm about to say. Um, and, and I've sort of already shown you my hand. So um, my idea of what the metaphor is here is um, totally self-reflexive. Uh, it's basically commenting on the artificiality of comics, the artificiality of uh, superhero comics, navel-gazing X-Men continuity, and seems to be unconnected to any group or ideology, sorry, uh, Jewish, Native American, Indian, Pakistani, what have you, outside the pages of Marvel Comics. Um, what I find really interesting about this story in particular is, as a superhero story, it's not necessarily designed to inspire you or thrill you, um, and it doesn't really... Uh, speak to the better angels of our nature. Mm -hmm. um, it does nothing to develop foundational ideas. It doesn't interrogate any backstory about the X-Men. Um, it doesn't get into their failings as, uh, as a group, mutants, their failings as a group, their stereotypes. It just sort of, uh, you know, has these established continuities that sort of go to a logical conclusions. So part of it's the nothing changes, and I get that. Um, and to use sort of a Simpsons reference that's 16 years old, it is literally the X-Men with a new hat. This mm -hmm. is Malibu Stacy, but she's got a new hat. And that's okay. And I think yeah, it's a nice metaphor, hat. It's a nice hat, as we, <laughs> we said from the start. Um, and I think the metaphor here is part of like, if you can't beat them, join them. And sort of Hickman is, you know, developing new ideas. He's not changing too much. Um, he's not investigating old ones. He's just doing a little bit of, you know, don't spinning some plates and leading into sort of brand maintenance. And in some ways, I don't think he's necessarily this smart, but maybe he is. I think that's the best you can do right now. I mean, we live in a, in, as entertainment goes, there aren't a lot of new ideas out there. We are, I mean, this is like Andy Warhol's dream. We are constantly just turning out the same thing again and again and again, and it's the repetition and it's the idea of just the sameness of it that is the art. I don't think Jonathan Hickman thinks that way. I think he's telling you an X-Men story. It's a decent X-Men story. But when you start to sort of pull it back and just... This, this comic also relies, literally relies on repeated frames. It mm -hmm. doesn't change anything from any perspective. Mm -hmm. It gives you two different artists drawing the same layout, the same paneling. That has to mean something. And I think it's a comment on this idea of repetition, whether it's repetition in superhero comics, repetition in um, uh, our culture right now, or whatever it is. Um it's a it's a big part of the story. So I think the metaphor is the self-reflexivity of Marvel Comics and X-Men continuity. That's yeah. my metaphor. Yeah, uh, you know, you're... Sorry, you're, yours are better than mine. Yours no, are no, things that Keith, people... <laughs> Keith, you're preaching to the choir here. I mean, this is, this is one of my fundamental problems with corporate superhero comics is that they're... As much as there may be new ideas and there may be ways to explore interesting themes, it ultimately reverts back to we've got to sell more and more of these things, right? So they're gonna they're gonna do whatever it takes to 
keep everybody coming back and they don't want to alienate people and anything like that. But in some ways, I'm not, go ahead. Sorry. But, but, but that's not necessarily comics. That's these kind of comics. Oh, I think it's every, I mean, you know, every movie is a reboot. Every movie is a sequel, you know, sequels and movies and things like that. Oh, much of the mainstream fare, whatever they're doing fast and the furious 87. Oh, yeah. Now. yeah. They're yeah. releasing jungle cruise as a movie. I mean, <laughs> the biggest entertainment company in the world. And this is what they're going back to. So right. as much as you want to stand up and be like those corporate bastards, you know, I'm kind of like Jonathan Heckman's leaning in. He's like, yeah, man, this is the world we live in. This is what you want. I'm giving you what is out there. So then then it is is a success. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know how it... From that way, yeah, I guess. I don't know how it can't be a success. This comic, they're enthused about the same old, same old in a way. They're, to quote my, uh, my friend Tucker Stone... You're, they're getting you to like the same shit you already like. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Hmm. Hmm. Well, bravo. Bravo. No, 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 no. No, no. There's, still, there's no bravos. Yours are better. You know, I like this idea of, like, a Jewish state or a post-colonial kind of idea. Well, but those don't... More than just saying, you know... Oh no! It's just all about fucking comics, man. Yeah. But they aren't in—they aren't in opposition with each other. Those ideas, the the larger ideas, they don't hold up, right? Whereas I kind of, now that you've brought that up, I totally see what you're saying, and that idea holds up. That idea <laughs> continues on. Uh, well, I don't think they have to be in opposition with each other. I'm wrong. <laughs> Do you think they have to be in opposition with each other? Well, let me ask this a totally different way. Is there a place in mainstream superhero continuity comics for someone to create something that's an artistic, that stands on its own from an artistic standpoint? That's a great work of comic art. That's still tied to continuity. Yeah, I think you have it here. Why why, why would you not say that you have it here? I mean, again... I felt like Daniel was arguing against that concept, I guess. I was saying, I was speaking more of the larger metaphor, the sort of what's it all about part of it. Mm -hmm. But no, I think you can engage this comic on the level that it's at and be like, is this a decent X-Men story? And that's not fair because we have these other X-Men stories and I myself have my own favorites that you're never going to come close to in my mind because they're my favorites. So if this for someone adds another you know, uh, gem to the crown, another jewel to the crown of X-Men storytelling. You know, are we still going to talk about House of X and Powers of X, uh, you know, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, like we do about Days of Future Past or, God forbid, you know, Sienkiewicz and Claremont's New Mutants? I mean, maybe. I don't know. Um, Maybe for that 12-year-old version of me that's reading these comics now, if that's a thing, maybe it will be. Um, and, And... that perhaps is the other side of this, which is, you know, there's a pretty good chance, Daniel Elkin, that this comic isn't for you. And I think that's perfectly okay. Yeah, oh, um, absolutely. And, and, well, and, and I got to say, to be fair, Daniel, I offered you two other comics that were much more indie-minded. <laughs> no, I, 
but but you know, like um, I think we would have had a very different conversation about stuck rubber baby. Oh yeah, but I but I think it's important for somebody who who is a a lover of comics and a supporter of comics to understand all that comics are. And and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this book with you guys because it, it helps me clarify why I feel the way I feel about comics. Hmm. So let me ask a let me ask a question that maybe maybe can kind of sum this up since we're a little over an hour. So as I look over Keith's shoulder, I see books like Black Hole and um, Local and Solo, uh, which are all kind of creator driven work, and they're all they all have kind of a soul to them, a passion behind them. Um, do you did you feel that passion reading this work? And um, if you did feel that passion, did you feel like uh, I don't know it it resonated? It obviously didn't resonate with you in some ways. Go ahead, Dan. Oh no, I thought that question was directed oh, to you. Oh, that's for me. Well, that's oh, for either of you guys. Oh, oh because it's up there. Books are over my shoulder. Yeah, um, yeah, but I know you're. <laughs> but Daniel, I know you know those books too. Yeah. Right. Um. So, as a creator-driven work, so I think you would be foolish to say that. Um, it's a writer-driven work. I never got a sense that uh, the two cartoonists that were involved, Silva and Perez, um, I, I'm embarrassed that I'm not bringing it right up to mind right now, um, that they they kind of felt like what they were drawing was a house style. Um, there's not much of a difference between the two of them uh, where you can really tell one from the other. I think that's part of the issue that Marvel Comics is at right now. It's all writer-focused, um, not art-focused or cartoonist-focused. So that's definitely going to be a strike in my book. Um, and so, but as so for Jonathan Hickman, yeah, I think this is very serious, a, a serious work of his. Something that obviously, I'm not saying he doesn't care about it or he cares about it, not that that matters, but more of like he's put a lot of effort into this. He's goddamn put a lot of thought into it for sure mm -hmm. but as a creator owned thing of itself no it doesn't resonate for me simply because again unless those repetitions and those art styles matching so closely as they do is a comment itself that's not enough for me to come back and say oh yeah this stands out i mean again this is the world we live in you're, you're getting exactly what you expect to get because, you know, this is what you want. So, you know, if you had two artists that had vastly different styles, I don't know as that's what Marvel Comics wants right now. I don't think Jonathan Hickman really cares. Mm -hmm. I think he's got a story to tell and he needs somebody to draw it for him. And he's got two pros doing it and their work is good. But I don't know as you can tell one apart from the other. Again, that's part of the story, but... So to answer your question in a long way, no, Jason, on as a comic writer and artist combined powers, you know, Wonder Twin powers uh, combined as a writer. Yes. If you read comics for the writers, I think this is right up your alley. But um, one of the books over there is Scout, and that is a great example of a writer and an artist working together to tell a story. And it stands on its own as both a work of a writer and in the work of an artist, 
this book doesn't, this book is no scalped, but that's not fair to um, any of the creators involved in that. Two totally different ideas, two totally different things. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Is that an asshole answer? To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a conversation of, yeah, that's a pretty asshole thing to say. Yeah. You're on brand. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> so on brand, I almost expect Daniel to say that. Uh, <laughs> oh, the the Elk and Silva brand is tight. <laughs> we cross over an awful lot. <laughs> no, that's not fair either. Um, and, and that's putting you in your in a bad place, Daniel, because it, this isn't. Yeah. It's not no, I'm teasing. At all. But but do you see it as a standalone, you know, artistic statement work on both art and writing side of things? I I, I see it as um, a corporate product. I really do. I really don't feel that this was. Uh, emotionally resonant. I don't feel that the themes that it was exploring um, transcended itself. I just kind of got the feeling that, oh yeah, so I wanted some entertainment. Here's my money. Oh, I got it. I felt like they were unlikable characters doing things that are kind of a lot shorter sighted than they felt like it would be. So ultimately, uh, uh, unlikable characters making long-term mistakes. Except for that hat. That, was that hat was amazing. <laughs> I, I, there's one part of this that I was looking for this morning, and I was trying to, I, I was trying to figure out uh, where I went wrong and what I got wrong. <laughs> and one of the places I kept back to is I said, "Where is?" Who's the voice of antagonism? Because X-Men need antagonism, whether they're fighting humans, which they really don't in this book, besides the space station, um, or they're fighting other mutants. And there's the scene with Namor, which I read and reread again today and try to figure it out. I was, I was just looking for it right now as we were talking. And what's interesting is... Professor X goes to Namor at the bottom of the sea, and it's cool. There's sharks swimming around, so cool art. And um, Namor is the only person that really sort of stands up to Professor X, and he basically says, look, pal, I'm where you were, you know, uh, where you are now. I, w- I was there, you know, wel- welcome to the club kind of thing, <laughs> you know, duh, is <laughs> what, what, what Namor says. Yeah. But he says, but... It, I, I just pulled it up here. So um, Professor X, after he tells everyone we're forming this island, Krakoa, everyone who's a mutant's welcome, his ass, his projection or whatever goes to Namor, who's the sharks are swimming around. He's got this great, uh, you know, uh, Lovecraftian monster squid head behind him. Yeah. And uh, he says, um, Namor says to Xavier, it's good that you finally figured this out, but let me ask you, do I strike you as someone who's just now realized how much better I am than everyone else? And do you actually think I believe that you feel that way too? Go away, little man, and don't come back until you really mean it. Mm. So we basically, in this story, have been told that this is Professor X's, he and Magneto are lockstep now. They are, they are arm in arm leading their mutants into the future. But to Namor, 
he's not there yet. Like, he still thinks that Professor X, I guess, is not buying into this fully. Like, he hasn't embraced the... And I keep throwing the F word around, the fascist word around, because I do think in some ways, a lot of ways, Krakoa is, you know, we want you and nobody else. That's where, that's how I'm defining, that's how I'm using the word fascist. But Namor's like, no, you haven't gone far enough, but this is the farthest. I don't know how much farther you can go, but uh, this seems pretty far. And I guess it's not far enough for, uh, for Namor. Does Xavier wear was he wearing the hat while he was yes, talking to him? He's, he's got the hat on. He's got uh, the hat on. <laughs> but, but what do you make so, of that? That, like, aren't they going as far as they've ever gone? And I guess it's not far enough. I don't really understand that. I, I, I tried to figure out, because that's the only voice of opposition of all the mutants. And of I think all, it gets yeah. what we talked about earlier, which is everybody, whether they have their mouths closed or their mouths open, they're all drinking the kool-aid for another bad metaphor so i don't know tell me tell you guys got any thoughts or on that particular section sequence i'm sure that's jason so first of all i think it reinforces the idea that this is professor x's dream and not any sort of reality because like you said no everyone falls in lockstep everyone stands behind him everyone talks in these very cliched ways Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh uh, Namor is the only one who even talks in a different way. It's okay, it's this grandiose, marvel-esque way of talking. Yeah, yeah, Ooh, yeah. yes. Um, I read that a little differently than you did. I read it as him saying, you know, you think it's so easy to run a country. Let me tell you, it's fucking hard. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's yeah. really fucking hard to be the king. And if you think you're going to be the king, and the, you know, so they don't actually talk, they have a vague comment towards the end of the book about what sort of government they want to have. But if essentially, this is not a democracy. This is a government run by a council of 12 who are going to decide everything for all these millions of mutants. Right. Um, and he's saying, it's a lot fucking harder than you think it is. Go away, little man, once you start figuring things out, because you're just like... You know, you're you're not thinking this through. We spent a lot of pages for him not to think this through. Yeah. <laughs> so well, the, well, yeah. the good news is that it's all gonna fail anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, negative Nancy. Like go. we expected anything else from Daniel. <laughs> go back to your poem. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's uh, a... Yeah, I, I don't mean that to be the last sort of uh, statement on on this, but I, I do sort of think that, you know, look, it's a very fine X-Men story. I don't know what legs it has going forward. Um, it certainly has legs going forward for the next couple of years. Jason, I think that's a great point that you made until the next one comes around. Um, and then this will be judged on on that one. Right. I mean, as we sort of go forward, we'll be like, oh, you know, House of X really changed things, even though, as we've sort of said, it it does and it doesn't. Um, It does introduce the resurrection idea. That's that's a game changer in this. If it sticks. What's that? If it sticks. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, I'll close with this. I think it's my my maybe my last cool statement, last thoughtful (laughs) statement. 
I don't know if cool is a subjective term. Um, Grant Morrison came around in 2000 and resurrected the X-Men, had his own take on things, and for a couple years there, they were kind of cool, cutting-edge, interesting characters. And slowly his revolution kind of subsided and everything kind of drifted back to its same normalcy. I think in our world, everything eventually reverts to the mean. And um, this is a pretty radical take that will probably end up reverting to the mean in some way. Um, I don't think the, it takes away from the radical take, though, to say that eventually things will end up reverting to the mean. I think we have to accept the radical take for what it is and then say, um, as a standalone work of art, is it great? And I think it's not great. I think it's weak in some ways. Um, I think the dialogue is terrible. I think the, the, uh, ideas are shallow. Um, and there's really no villains in this book. So therefore there's really no conflict. And that even the scenes that were expected to resonate with us, like the Moira Charles scene that we get repeated three times or the fireworks scene that we get repeated, I think twice, um, didn't really like have the resonance I wanted them to have. And maybe they would work better in the monthly book or the biweekly or weekly books. But in, in this book, uh, I didn't feel like they had the power Hickman wanted them to have. So I think it's, it, it, it's a valiant attempt and it's cool that people like it so much, but I think as a standalone work of comic art, it's not scalped. <laughs> It's not rubber baby. And in no way am I going to say that anyone who appreciates this work is wrong. I think that this speaks to people um, where they're at. And if this is something that that they like, then they like that. And that's great. Uh, It just doesn't work for me in terms of my conception of what comics can be. Yeah, I think that's fair to say that's sort of where we come down on it after, you know, a combined nearly century of comics reading um, and, and understanding this medium and really talking and thinking about it. Again, I think in the end, if, if you were to ask me about this, I would say there's some cool ideas. It just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. And, and, and whether it goes anywhere as far as in the future, that's to be determined. Um, and again, it doesn't sort of. It just sort of, again, rearranges the chairs. It explains all the engines and tells you all the schematics. I really think Jonathan Hickman should rewrite what was one of my favorite comics uh, when I was a kid, which was uh, Mark Grunwald's official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Because because I could read comic stories and then find out about, you know, the backstory of whomever – you know, from abomination to zzz, or, <laughs> you know, uh, and that was fun because it was an encyclopedia, right. and you read the encyclopedia separate than you read the comic, right. Right. and I really think that Jonathan Hickman is missing uh, his shot here, and that's really, I think he wants to be Mark Grunwald, Jason. I think that's really what he wants to be. By the way, that character's name was Zax. And the very first convention sketch I ever bought was by Herb Trimpey of Zax. Because it sounds so much like Zax. Zax. And it's like three or four Zs. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. And I'm glad um, you kind of confirmed my thoughts on this because I felt like I was a little bit of an outlier. 
How did you think you were an outlier? Well, because I have so many friends who are crazy about it. Oh, well, you found the right friends now. <laughs> I know who the better friends are. <laughs> oh, boy. That cut. <laughs> oh, thank you.